Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tas Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Bill Nye, the apartment guy. So, Bill, thank you. Thank you for uh, coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Yeah. So I was uh, very glad that uh, Adrian introduced us. I am as well. We're new to one another. So this should be fun. <laughs> yeah. Now, I looked at your uh, your background info and you started out in the uh, U.S. Air Force. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Life changing experience for me. I think everybody looks back in their life and you can see key decisions you made that either had a, a huge positive impact on your life or, you know, a big mistake. And I can honestly say that joining the United States Air Force was one of those defining decisions that really changed the, you know, the direction of my life in a very positive way. Yeah. What's a common story you tell people about your experience? The one that most people find interesting is the first time. So I was a crew member on a C-141 Starlifter, which is a four-engine cargo jet, great airplane. So, you know, true polar cargo. And the story that people usually find most interesting is when I talk about the first time you do an in-flight refueling mission. And, you know, you're cruising at, you know, 30,000 feet, 400 knots, you know, you slow down from 600 knots to 400 knots. And this huge KC-135 comes flying over your head and right in front of you. And there's the there's the boom operator looking at you and he waves. And, and to be doing that at that altitude, at that speed with two such huge planes, I mean, it's just an incredible experience. And you just feel this adrenaline running through your body. It's like, holy cow, this is something out of a movie and I'm actually doing this. This is real. So, yeah. you know, it's just a really cool experience. Yeah. I mean, how do you describe the difficulty of that <laughs> Other, you know, for, for a regular person? Like I remember someone talking about, um, you know, like landing on an aircraft carrier, like the size of a, yeah. you know, for them, a size of a postage stamp, right? Right. Well, it's right. moving up and down. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, cornhole's a very uh, a, a very common game. You know, played here in the you know in the South where I live, and um, you know people find cornhole to be somewhat challenging. You're trying to throw that that bag into a hole three four times the size of the bag on a board that's stationary. And so what I always tell people is, you're trying to get a boom to go into a hole the size of that hole while both aircraft are moving. So imagine putting the cornhole board on a moving platform where it's rocking left and right, up and down, and you're still trying to get that beanbag into that hole. And people would say, well, that's impossible. Well, it's not because, you know, we did it every day, you know, at, like I said, at 30,000 feet. So that's the best way I can describe the difficulty of that. Yeah, I can picture that. That's a great description. <laughs> Now you you mentioned some of the mistake mistakes some mistakes right the Air Force was not a mistake what's the mistake you you'd willing to share Oh boy there have been so many Fortunately, I can look back at my life and say that I didn't make a lot of um, 
big professional mistakes, you know, made some personal mistakes that everybody makes. But honestly, I think in my career, because, you know, I travel around the country and and uh, sometimes outside of the United States, you know, speaking. And I had to learn very quickly kind of where the line was in terms of uh, humor with the audience. And, you know, I, I can honestly say that in the beginning, you know, I shared some stories and some jokes that I thought would play well with the audience. It didn't. And, you know, it's really funny is one of the things I learned is that there's a big difference between what a man can say that's viewed as funny versus what a woman can say. And I've heard some some women professional speakers tell some stories. I thought well, that was a, and, and I'm not by any means. I'm not a vulgar person. I don't I don't curse. You know, I'm a very clean person. I live my life that way. I was I was raised a Quaker. Uh, which, you know, my daughter, when I, when I shared that with my daughter, when she was a little girl, she's like, Quaker, what is that? And I said, well, it's a really antiquated kind of archaic religion, but we make the best oatmeal you'll ever have. And you know, my daughter was eight at the time. She didn't get the Quaker oats reference. I, I wasted a good joke on her. You know, but my my point is that I, I, I you know, I made some mistakes very early on by telling some jokes I thought the audience had thought was funny and they found offensive. And I will tell you as a as a speaker, the worst thing you can do is to, to be offensive. That's like the cardinal sin. When you're offensive to your audience, there's no coming back with that audience. You know, you learn from it and you're like, hmm. You know, that didn't play the way I'd hoped, but I definitely learned that you, you've got to be really careful that what you might think is funny, the audience might find is offensive and you got to be yeah. really careful of that. And so that was a good lesson for, unfortunately, I learned it very early on and, uh, you know, was able to identify where clearly where that line was and stay far away from it because that's never my goal because the audience stops listening to you they're not going to learn because they're sitting there they're they're too offended to care about anything you say at that point absolutely so on your website it goes bill nye the apartment guy i guess that's a reference to science guy you get you get those yeah. jokes yes. on you. So it's funny because for years, you know, when I would speak to uh, apartment associations and multifamily, you know, management companies all over the country, they would always introduce me as not Bill Nye, the science guy, but Bill Nye, the apartment guy, because, you know, that's kind of how I made my living professionally and, and, and still do today. And I hated it. I hated it. I, I never told them I hated it, but I hated it. Like, why do you have to do that? Why can't I just be Bill Nye? And so, you know, 13 years or so ago, no, more, more than that, I guess 15 years ago, I had an opportunity to become the CEO of a, of a property management development company. And so I continue to speak, but on a, on a much more scaled down basis, you know, where I used to just do that full time. So anyhow, five months ago, I relaunched my speaking career full time. You know, I, I helped navigate a, a management company from self-managing to a, a large national third-party management company. It, it was the, you know, it was the right move and the right decision. And so once that was done, there was nothing left for me to do. And so I decided, you know, it's time to go back to speaking and training full-time. And I thought, you know, I have to embrace the thing that I hate because the people have spoken. You know, the market is never wrong. And I've said that for many, many years of my training is that the market is never wrong. We may think we know what someone's willing to pay for something or, you know, whether or not they'll see the value in it, but the market will always tell you whether or not you're right. And often we're wrong. The market is always right. And so I thought, you know, the market has been calling me Bill Nye apartment guy forever. As much as I don't like it, because I actually don't, I thought I just, it's time to embrace it. And so I did. I just decided to embrace that that moniker. So 
I launched my website. And when you embraced it, I mean, how did it go? You know, people had no idea that I hated it. <laughs> and so <laughs> I got a lot of comments about it from people around the country. Like, hey, love your new website. I'm like, thanks. I'm glad to hear that. I actually hate that. And they're like, really? I've been calling you that for 20 years. I'm like, I know. But why well, tell somebody, please don't call me that. I hate it, you know? So they were shocked to find out that I actually hate being called Bill Nye the apartment or Bill Nye apartment guy. But yeah, you know, it's a, I think it's just a natural thing because of the science guy thing. And, and so, yeah. you know, and I hear that every day of my life, every day, somebody is the first person that day to say to me, your name's Bill Nye, like Bill Nye, the science guy. Yeah. Like, yep. Yeah. Yep. It is. It names are names, you know, there's, there's certain things that stick, right? So you mentioned something about the transition that you were doing with the organization. I assuming that's the one you were a CEO of walk, walk me through that. Cause I'm not familiar with the transition that you're referring to. Yeah. So no, it was actually a different company. So I moved to Texas two years ago. So I became the CEO of this company. It's a, is a small, I say small, smaller than what I was accustomed to. 20 some communities, about 5,000 units. The the CEO was actually a, someone that I've known for years. I actually taught his certified apartment manager designation course here in Houston, probably 14, 15 years ago. And so I joined the organization as their COO. You know, we had struggles that, that I felt were very unique to the company. And one of the things I've always tried to do is, is understand where we are in this current time in terms of the economy, the market, the employment market, all of that. And we were constantly struggling with some of those key positions within the organization, marketing, accounting, training, you know, and HR. And we just could not attract top talent for those positions. And as a result, the properties were suffering. And, you know, we were trying to do this ourselves with, you know, 23 properties and 5,000 units. And I just... I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. So I, I really just had a tough conversation with the CEO who, you know, was very proud of the fact that not only do we own these properties, but we also manage our own properties. And I just said, listen, we're never going to be able to solve this issue long term and keep top talent in these positions in this market where we don't offer anything that the really large, great management companies in this market offer. And this is always going to be our Achilles. If we go third party with a big company, they're going to have all these solutions in-house. It will no longer be the Achilles. And we owe it to the investors to do make these tough decisions. And that, that's what I told them. This is all about the investors. Because I think if you go this route, I think this is doing the right thing by the investors. And, you know, he chewed on it for a while. He actually said, wow, you threw a bucket of cold water on me. Because it's not what he wanted to hear. Yeah. But... You know, I felt like that was the right, you know, the right message to relay. And so yeah. after thinking about it and talking to some folks that he respects around the country, you know, he came back and said, you're right. This is the direction we're going to go. And I, and I knew when we had that conversation that there'd be no place for me that I and I even told him that I am firing myself <laughs> by having this conversation. You know, I, I think that's part that's part of leadership is that it can't be about you. It has to be about what's best for the organization, what's best for the customer. And I knew I'd be okay. I wasn't worried. And I knew the on-site employees would be okay because whoever managed those properties would need them. They would they would be absorbed into that organization. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. No, that's uh that's good. I mean, it, it takes courage to to put something out there that sort of 
we you know, pulls yourself out of the process. So that's wonderful. So walk me through, and I know you talk about you're working on a, a book or a project on intentional culture. So walk, yeah. walk me through that. Yeah. So I'm really excited about this and can't wait. I'm hoping by, by June to have this ready to be published. It's been a long process because I don't want it to just be, you know, about my opinions. I want it to be very research-based. And so, you know, when people say, what kind of speaker are you? I always say, I'm an illustrator. I make my point through stories. And so, you know, the book is going to be filled with lots of interesting stories. So the idea, the premise behind the book, Intentional Culture, is that one of the things I've learned as I travel around the country and I talk to, you know, business leaders and, and owners and I ask them about their organization, and I get the same answer over and over, which is, you know, we're proud of our culture. We have a unique culture. Well, everybody has a culture, and every company has a unique culture. Uh, there's nothing unique about having a culture. I've learned what people don't realize is that they don't understand that culture happens regardless of, of what you do or don't do. And I use the example of if you were to go out into your yard, and you were to take a shovel and you were to dig up the grass and work up the dirt and then walk away and leave it. Eventually, you'll no longer have a bare spot in your yard. Something will grow there, but it will never be what you want. You're not going to walk out in your backyard one day and say, holy cow, look, blueberries grew in our yard or, or sweet corn or tomatoes. No, it's going to be weeds. And that's culture. If you're not intentional about building a culture, you're still going to build a culture. It's just not going to be the culture that you want. And so intentional culture is about how to do just that, to be intentional, to actually, if, you know, I grew up on a farm and my dad looked at a piece of ground and he said, we're going to grow corn on that piece of ground. So we were intentional about growing corn. And guess what we grew? We grew corn. So one of the analogies I often make is business is like cooking and baking. Every great outcome requires a recipe, and every recipe requires two things, the right ingredients and the right amount of the right ingredients. So if I have a recipe that calls for a teaspoon of salt and I put a cup of salt in that, I've ruined the recipe. It says salt, but I've used too much salt or too little salt. And I always tell people, if you follow a recipe for German chocolate cake and you open the oven, you're going to pull out a German chocolate cake. You're not going to pull out a meatloaf. You're, you're going to get the results that you're intentionally trying to get. And so that's the idea behind the book is how to be intentional to get the outcome that you want so that when you open the oven, you get exactly what you want. And it's amazing because here's the thing. Everybody is talking about culture and everybody's paying attention to culture. But what they're really saying is I'm paying attention to the experience, right? Because that's what culture delivers. It delivers an experience for both the customer and for the team, for the employee. And so everybody's looking for it. Here's what people don't necessarily recognize immediately is that beautiful cultures make everybody envious. And when you, when you, just like when you go out in the countryside, you see a beautiful farm with beautiful crops growing. You're like, holy cow, look at that. Look how beautiful that is. That looks amazing, right? We all enjoy that. It's, it's just, you know, and, and there's an envy, you know, and, and a healthy envy. But when you have a beautiful culture, it makes everybody envious. And people, the best people in your market, look at what you've built, look at what you're doing, 
and and they say, how do I become a part of that? And when you reach that point, that's the tipping point. And when you reach that point, everything becomes so much easier. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what are some suggestions do you you give? Because obviously this book didn't just uh, you know, pop into it today. You've been talking to people about this for a while. What, what are yeah. the common tips that you give people around this? Well, the most important one and the, and the mistake I see most people make is that they allow their culture to be a byproduct or a mirrored image of their own personality. And one of the things that I, I actually talk about in the book is that in a healthy culture, the culture shapes people's personalities. In an unhealthy culture, the personality shaped the culture. And so, you know, what I mean by that, for instance, you know, in the last couple of years, remote work has become very commonplace, right? But there are a lot of people who hate it. And by people, I mean executives and leaders. They hate it. Okay. And what's your point? See, there are executives out there who have people who spend all day behind a computer and they say, nope, I won't allow it. I don't think it's good. I don't trust that they're working. I need to see them in the office. That's your personality dictating your culture. And, you know, it makes people scratch their heads and they say, why does it have to be this way? Why? And, and so that's, a, that's the first mistake I see people make is that they allow their personality to shape the culture as opposed to allowing the culture to shape the personality. And what I found in building healthy cultures, and, and, and I can you know, say with great confidence that I've successfully built some really healthy cultures in, in, in two organizations in particular. And the thing I found is that people will come into our organization with a set of attitudes and actions and behaviors and learn very quickly that that actually doesn't bring any value to this organization. And they begin to change their attitude, their actions and their behaviors. Why? Because the healthy culture shapes the personality, not the other way around. Okay. That makes sense. Is this your first book project? It is. It is. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I have a couple of other written projects out there. I have one that actually, I wouldn't call it a book project. So in one of my previous lives, I used to write these uh, inspirational messages to the team. And I called it the playbook. And the organization fell so in love with this and, and felt like anyone who joined the organization after I'd written some of these, these middle of the night posts to the team, uh, they didn't want them to miss out on those. So they literally took all of those and and had them printed or published into a book. So I, I do have that. It's called The Playbook. And I actually have a copy on my nightstand right now. Very, very nice. You said you you help run two organizations. Did that just come naturally to you? Like, how did you how did you get into the speaking side of things? That goes back to the Air Force. So, uh, I mean, it started before then. So when I was in the sixth grade, my sixth grade class, our teacher taught us during one of our blocks, public speaking, and held a contest and invited other teachers to come. And so all the students voted on the four best speeches, invited all the other elementary school teachers to come. And we went into the cafeteria with all their classes. And then those four had to deliver their speech to the rest of the school. And these teachers were the panel. And so I'm 12 years old. I was one of the four finalists voted on by my classmates. And at the age of 12, I'm in the cafeteria delivering this speech in front of all of the teachers and all of the, all of the kids in that, in that small country school in Ohio. And I won. 
And I think I realized then at 12 that I, I may have a gift for this, but you, you don't know what to do with it. You're 12 years old, right? I mean, what do I do? Do I become a sportscaster? What do I do with this? So, you know, it kind of goes by the wayside. Well, when I was in the Air Force, one of the defining moments that really has shaped me, you know, who I am today as a leader, my unit commander nominated me for the Air Force Leadership School. And that's a very, very prestigious uh, school. It's incredibly intense and only a few, and I mean a few, are chosen to attend this, this school or academy. So I went, and while I was there, one of the blocks in the school, and you live there, you live in this school, and it's seven days a week, and it's 12 hours a day of classroom instruction. And of course, there's you're in the military, so there's, there's drill and there's PT and all that that goes along with it as well, because they believe that as a military leader, you have to be physically fit, you have to be mentally fit. And so anyhow, uh, one of the blocks was was public speaking, and they teach all the different types of public speaking and you had to give a speech and all those different types so then in the end you you have to deliver a i believe it was a four minute speech planned with a a visual aid and uh, the class just like when i was in sixth grade the class then voted on the four best and they brought a panel of officers in then we had to re-deliver that speech to this panel of officers and at graduation they recognized the person who delivered the best speech, and that person then had to get up and give the speech at graduation. Well, I won. And so then I'm I'm delivering that four-minute speech at my graduation. And the PACAF, Pacific Air Force Commander, Major General Robert Johnson, was in the audience. He came for our graduation because it was such a big event. And uh, he came up to me, introduced himself to me at, at the graduation, and said, that was the most inspirational speech I think I've ever heard in my life. And so he got me released from my regular duties. And the Air Force flew me around the Pacific Theater delivering that speech to every officer in the Pacific Theater. And that's really what kind of got the uh, the speaking fire going in my belly. And, uh, you know, it took years for me to kind of get back to that because I had a military career to finish. And I thought I could satisfy that through public school, uh, teaching public school. That didn't do the trick. That was actually an awful experience. But going through business, you know, then working in business and kind of working my way through, you know, or up the ranks, I just one day I said, you know what, I, th I think this is something I want to try. So I resigned my position as the CEO after eight years with the company, became a, a full-time professional speaker. And of course, nobody would hire me because nobody will hire a guy who has no resume. No event planner wants to take a risk on a guy who can't say, yeah, I spoke here, 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 and here, because the event planner knows if they hire me and I'm terrible, the next event they try to sell, nobody buys a ticket. And so it was, uh, I would say it was three years of starving, kind of like trying to break into, you know, theater or as a musician or acting, you just got to tough it out, tough it out, tough it out. And and uh, so, you know, I, I spoke, I tell people, I, I spoke in broom closets for free for a couple of years before people were finally willing to write a check to hear what I had to say. It was a tough field to break into, but well worth it. Wonderful. You, you mentioned uh, earlier about your, your roles, your operating roles and under, having to understand trends and stuff like that. How do you approach that? How do I approach the trends? Yeah, you were talking about, you know, with with the properties and stuff, you had to stay close to trends and how you, how you do that. I'm I'm sure that that was a daily thing to try to figure that out. How did you do that? Or what was your what was your thought process around that? 
Yeah, you know, it was for me because uh, first of all, you know, I I always try to look at what becomes successful and what fails, and 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 why. You know, for instance, I've often talked about Kodak and how you know when we were kids, you know, every holiday was referred to as a Kodak moment. And that's because, you know, that's where everybody was at grandma and grandpa's house and all the cousins and, you know, and grandma had this little box and she would click a picture and scroll a wheel. And then she would take that box and give it to some 15 year old in a little shack in a in a, a supermarket parking lot and wait a week to get her prints back. And what people don't realize is that Kodak invented digital photography technology. And the leaders at Kodak said, nobody's going to want this. People want to hold their pictures in their hands. And so Kodak sold the very technology that basically put them out of business. And so, you know, I always look at what works and what doesn't. You know, Steve Jobs made one of the most brilliant comments I think I've ever heard. And that is, people don't know what they want until we tell them. And when I really conceptualized that, thought, I didn't know that I wanted all the things in my phone until I saw somebody like, what is that? What do you do? You know, 25 years ago, whatever it was. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I have to have that. Right. And that's how things catch on. And that's how you start to get, you know, market saturation. And so honestly, I go to work every day with a very simple concept. And that is this, my title and position doesn't make me right. And I think that's what keeps companies from uh, understanding trends and what's important to the consumer is that they think their title and position makes them right. And I always took the exact opposite approach that my title and position doesn't make me right. It might make me highly paid, but it doesn't make me right. And so if I go into every meeting and every conversation with the humility that I don't know anything about this, then I'm an open book. And as people are saying, have you heard about this? Have you seen this? Have you tried this? Have you thought about this? You know, it just, I think it puts you in a position where, you know, you're, you're, you're willing to do things that other people talk about doing, but they're never actually willing to do. And, and I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Is there anything that I did not ask you, but you wanted to share before we close this off? No, I, I, I don't think so. I, I hope as people are, are, are watching this and listening to this, that they're, uh, their wheels are turning. I'm not the guy who tries to tell people what to do. I'm a farmer. I want to plant the seed and then let people grow it in the way that makes sense for them. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash tats talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.